morning. The reading today is from Esther 2, verses 1 to 19, and it can be found on page 493 in your pew Bibles. Esther 2, verses 1 to 19. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had agreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm and bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman, or the young woman who pleases the king, be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was a citadel of Susa, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive by Jehoquim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, Many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Hegai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place of the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's term came to go to, to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics and this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there, and in the morning, return to another part of the harem to the care of Shegaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman that Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abhael, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other young women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He 
proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Thanks so much, Philippa. It would have been great to hear her continue reading uh, this intriguing story. Uh, yes, from another time and a number, another place, but an intriguing story nonetheless. Um, for those of you who are guests, as Bruce said, my name's Andrew. I'm one of the ministers here. And really looking forward to introducing this, um, this ancient story to you. It's, it's a story that's filled with people who are powerful, beautiful, brutal, and erratic. Uh, but more importantly for our interest, it's a story of how two seemingly insignificant people emerge from, from almost nowhere into the great empire of Persia and end up being used by God to bring a wonderful rescue for God's ancient people, the Jewish people. The people to whom God long before had made promises that he would use them as his vehicle for bringing blessing to people everywhere. He loves these people. Although what's really interesting and what makes um, uh, Esther stand out is that there's 167 verses in Esther, but not a single one of them mentions God at all. There's no miracles here, there's no angels, there's no prophets, there's no visions, there's no dreams. It's a, it's a story unique in the Bible because of the hiddenness of God at a time when his people are in great crisis, at a time when all sorts of interesting things are happening in this massive empire. The hiddenness of God in our own experience strikes us when things are difficult, uh, when, when we live with disappointments, when we're living with distress. But the hiddenness of God that, that was the experience of people in Esther's day, in so many ways mirrors our own experience of God, especially of the miraculous. Here in the West, events just seem to take their normal course most of the time. Uh, miracles, a few and far between, if they occur at all. So where is God in all of that? These are the kind of things that the book of Esther probes for us. And it turns out to be super encouraging. Because you see, God's people, the Jewish people, the, his ancient, uh, ancient people, have been living in exile for decades uh, long before their city, Jerusalem, had been destroyed, everything that identified them as his people physically had been taken away from them. They'd been scattered across, at that stage, the, the empire of Babylon. They're still scattered, most of them. Some of them had got to go back to Jerusalem, what was left of it. But here we have a little community of them, uh, right in the centre of the Persian Empire. They're exiles. It's really interesting, when you get to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes Christians that way. So our first verse that I want to draw your attention to is actually the first thing that he writes in his first letter, where he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles. We're described as exiles, scattered through the provinces, in this case, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. 
What we're going to see over these next few weeks as we read this intriguing book is that the hiddenness of God to them and to us does not mean the absence of God. The absence of the miraculous and the spectacular intervention of God does not mean the absence of God. What we find, what we're going to find over these four weeks is that God remains to his people, committed to his people, and even when he is hidden from our sight. So this is actually a really good way to be kicking off this year. I mean, we don't know what is ahead for us. might be the best year we've ever had, or it might be a really tough year, maybe another tough year. This is a great way of God feeding us by his word, reassuring us that he is at work even through the mundane affairs of our lives. He's at work even through the things that looked disastrous in our experience, for our good and ultimately, especially for our salvation. But that's a run ahead a little bit. Let's go right back to the start of, of Esther. Uh, we jumped over this so we could get into the really exciting beauty pageant that we get to there in chapter 2. But we really need to hear about this, this, this uh, empire in which God's people find themselves. It's, it's a dangerous place, as we'll see. So verse 1, verse 1 of chapter 1 says, This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. Now, the citadel, that's the seat of government in the middle of the city. Uh, Everyone that's anybody who's got anything to do with running and organising these 127 provinces, they're there under the rule of the king and serving the king. Now, he's got a big job and they've got a big job. If you put those 127 provinces on a modern map, I've got to read these, it would cover these places. Uh, Northwestern India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Iran, Iraq, Armenia, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, Turkey, Northern Greece, Egypt, Libya, Eritrea, Ethiopia and Northern Sudan. Can you get your head around that? That is such a massive area. I mean, what, what it says as you see that map and as you read the opening verses of, uh, of, of Esther is that Xerxes is the most powerful man in the world. And as you read on, you realise he wants everybody to know it. And there are good reasons for that politically, but I, I think there might be some things happening personally for him as well. So verse 3 says... In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and the glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days, in the enclosed gardens of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. So what we're realising here is you could travel the whole world at this time and you could see nothing like what you see at this big show that Xerxes puts on. 
especially the banquet at the end when, when later on the, the gardens are described. They're, they're magnificent. And the food is fabulous. And the wine, there's more than enough for everybody. And everyone gets their own special golden goblet. Each of them are individualized. This is a massive show that he puts on, and it's fabulous. But as fabulous as this all is, not everything goes to plan. So in verse 10 we read, On the seventh day when the king was in high spirits, he was drunk from wine. He commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, sorry, in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. So much of what takes place here is very disturbing. What we're beginning to understand is that this great power of ruling the empire of Persia has, has been vested in a man who will get drunk in public. And, and what we realise is one of the things he values most, or the thing he values most about his queen is her beauty. This has no problem summon, summoning Vashti to come and stand and exhibit herself and her beauty in front of thousands of likewise drunk men as a mark of his greatness displaying her beauty. But here's the irony of what takes place here. He, he rules 127 provinces, but he can't make his queen obey him. So this is a disaster for his public image. So what's he going to do? Well, he consults his cabinet, he banishes Vashti, and then he uses all of the communication resources that are available to him in this empire to make sure that right down to every last household in each one of those 127 uh, provinces understands both what, Esther, uh, what, what Vashti has done and what the consequences have been for her. So by the end of chapter 1 we realise the world is being ruled by a brutal, erratic despot. And we also realise that living under his rule is going to be dangerous, whoever you are. So that's chapter one. Chapter two is dominated by the search for a new queen. But what we begin to see here is that living under the rule of Xerxes, living in the Persian Empire at this stage, is an especially dangerous person if you happen to be one of the followers of God, one of his people. So let's go to chapter two, which we're going to call beauty pageant, Persian style. So the thing about this, this pageant is you don't volunteer, you get volunteered because Xerxes has sent his commissioners to every one of the 127 provinces to find the most beautiful young women, beautiful physically and sexually. And wherever, wherever you are, if you're one of these women, you get brought to the king's harem. And at the king's harem, there'll be beauty treatment, and there'll be training for your night with the king. Now there's one big prize there, uh, being nominated and crowned as his queen. Uh, there's a few consolation prizes, 
But let me tell you, there's a lot of big-time losers in this whole uh, beauty pageant. So depending on what happens on the night you have with the king, uh, you'll never leave his harem, uh, but you may never see him again, depending whether you've pleased him or not. That means you'll never return home. You'll never see another man. If he, if he likes you, though, he may call you back to his bed. If he really likes you, he'll marry you so that your children can be his heirs. And if he really, really likes you, here's the big prize, you become his queen. It's dreadful, isn't it? The consequences here. But just as a side note, this is really interesting, it wasn't only the young women who were treated heartlessly in the court of Xerxes. Uh, the Greek historian Herodotus says that every year 500 boys were taken from their homes they were castrated for service as eunuchs in the court of Xerxes. So what the picture that we're seeing here is that everyone's sexuality within this kingdom, within this empire, was at the disposal of the king. So the great world empire, which was on show in chapter 1, is a dangerous place. It's, in so many ways, it could be a cruel place for anyone. From the queen, who's banished, to little boys and young women. But if you were listening carefully, as Philippa read for us, you'd realise there's a special danger if you're one of God's people, if you're one of the Jewish people. So Esther, she does rise to this extraordinary position of prominence in this great empire, one of the great empires of history. The little, beautiful Jewish orphan girl becomes the queen, and it's, it sounds like a fairy story almost, doesn't it? Her coronation, it's, it's celebrated far and wide. We've seen this kind of thing happen, these weddings. Of course, it's more than a wedding. It's, it's, she's crowned as queen. But, but the ominous note here is that her, her cousin who's cared for her because she, her parents had died, she was an orphan, her cousin has instructed her not to let anybody know of her, her nationality, of her, her Jewishness. Did you notice that? It was in verse 10 and also verse 20. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. That's before she, she becomes queen. It's after also. He says, you've got to keep it quiet, Esther. So there's a vulnerability with being one of God's people, which, as we'll see next week in chapter 3, becomes a live and present danger because Xerxes, by the middle of chapter 3, he's, he's signed off on a plan that someone else has come up with to murder every Jewish person in every province of the empire. Now, more on that next week, and... We'll be back to Esther in a moment, but there was just a little bit at the end of chapter 2 that we haven't read yet, and so I'd like to take you there. The one thing we didn't read was about Mordecai and what happens with Mordecai when he's at the king's gate. So let's read that from verse 21. During the time Mordecai, this is the cousin of Esther, the older cousin who cared for her, during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigtana and Teresh, imagine what we do with those names in Australia, Big Tana and Terry, uh, they're, they're two of the king's officers guarding the doorway and they became angry and they conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. 
But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. Hardly bears to think about that for very long, does it? How dangerous it would be to be caught or even suspected of wanting to assassinate the king. Anyway, all of this was recorded in the book of the Annals in the presence of the king. That credit being given to Mordecai. So there we are, that's chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Esther. We've, We've barely started, we've just really got a hold of the introduction. But already, what's happened is that Esther, the little orphan Jewish girl, is queen of Persia. And together with her cousin, she's been responsible for unearthing an assassination plot against the king. And the role of Mordecai in particular is is recorded in the official records of Persia. In the meantime, the would-be assassins are dealt with brutally. And by the way, later on, at the very end of his life, uh, Xerxes is assassinated in a successful attempt on his life. So chapters 1 and 2, they're just the introduction to the rest of the story, but already there's, there's some stuff to take away today. Already God is feeding us so that we, we, can, we can rise to the challenges, so that we can keep living as his people. The story that says nothing about God, his name is not mentioned, there's nothing miraculous. There's lots for us though to take away. Because Esther, Esther is primarily a theological story, even though God is not mentioned. It's a theological story about God, not a morality tale. Did you notice that as Philippa read, there's really no comment made about Esther, the rights and wrongs of her using her beauty, about sleeping her way with the king to become the queen, uh, under instruction from his cousin. Nothing is, there's no comment on that. It's, that, that part of the story is just told without comment because it's not a story so much about human morality as it is about God, about the, the way the hidden God is at work for the good of his people through ordinary mundane happenings in the world, through, if you like, secular events where you might not even realise that God's involved. I mean, it is easy to see that God's involved in another deliverance of his people. By the way, things turn out well for the Jews as a result of Queen, just for, uh, about Queen, uh, Queen Esther. She's responsible under God for a wonderful delivery for his people. Spoiler alert, that's where it's going. But a lot of you knew that already. But so, it's so easy to see God at work in the ten plagues of Egypt back in the time of Exodus and in the way that God rescued his people out of Egypt and brought them through the Red Sea and there's all those miraculous things happening. You say, God is at work in the Exodus. Do you say that God is at work when a a drunken king calls his queen to come and display herself to a whole bunch of other drunken men? What we'll realise as we read through the book of Esther, that God is, and we've already seen this, that God is working through events like that invisibly to raise up Esther to ultimately, wonderfully deliver his people. So there's, there's no, no miracles in Esther, but as we continue to read, we'll see there's a whole string of events that take place 
some of them quite mundane, which when you add them all up together, they help us understand that the God who is hidden from sight is working for the good of his people, especially for their deliverance. It's a beautiful book which illustrates the way in which God is at work in the ordinary affairs of our lives. Might not have the same spectacular outcomes in this life, but we know, for instance, from somewhere like Romans 8, that God is working all things together for the sake of his people. He's not just the God of the miracle or of the beautiful sunrise. He's the God of the everyday affairs of our lives, of the mundane things that go from day to day within our lives. Even the hard things, even the terribly disappointing things, even the very distressing things. God is, God is vitally involved in the everyday affairs of our world. He's, he's ordering things for the good of his people. Often in surprising ways. And it is surprising that this little orphan girl ends up being the queen who will bring about a great delivery for his people. It's often the way that God works, in, in surprising ways. It's surprising, isn't it? <laughs> this is the ultimate surprise, that the little baby born in Nazareth ends up being the saviour of the world. This is what we've been celebrating at Christmas time. Remarkable. And, and, and again and again, we see stories of God delivering his people. Back in Joseph's day, the kid brother who gets sold into, into slavery ends up being in a senior role in Egypt and instrumental in the salvation of his people and, 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 the, and the, spread, the, the growth of his, his people. Are the judges, you read the stories of the judges, again and again, God, God sends in saviour figures who in so many ways foreshadow the coming of the great saviour. And we're certainly seeing that sort of thing in the book of Esther. See, the, the, hidden, the God who is hidden in the book of Esther is, is so much in control that he can use the reckless actions of a fickle despot and the frankly compromised decisions and actions, even of his own people, to work for the good of his people and especially for their salvation. So that's Esther 1 and 2. Esther 1 and 2. I hope, I hope you can see that immersing ourselves in the rest of this story will mean we, we're immersing ourselves in the wonder of our God and the way that he works so hard in, 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 whilst he remains hidden from our sight. Look, this could be a year when God just answers your prayers in spectacular ways. There may be something miraculous ahead for you. It might be that at last, after all these years, Bruce has been laboring away here for, is it 13 or 14 years, praying every year for revival in Manly and across Australia. Maybe God will do that. He'll intervene in a way that it's just so obvious that that's what he's doing. But if he doesn't, we will still know that he is a God who never sleeps, he never slumbers, and that he is always watching over his people, right down to the very last of us, to those who might think of ourselves as the very least of his people. He's intimately involved in the affairs of our, life, of our lives, every day, every moment. So 
even if he is hidden from our sight, and so much of the time he is, although we see his works around us in the creation, if you know him, if, if, you, if you know him, you know you can trust him, no matter what the circumstances, no how, how tough things get. You can know that his ways are best, however difficult they may be. I mean, do you know that? Is that the way that you've been living in 2022? If not, maybe, maybe, as we read through Esther, God will be shaping you and reshaping you by this intriguing part of his word. Please may it be so. I'm going to lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to deliver us. And we thank you for your spirit, sending your spirit to be with us. That he is here with us present today and always. Thank you for the way that you are the all-powerful God, even of the mundane affairs of our lives, as much as you are the God of the miracle and the sunrise. And so guide us and guard us this year to keep trusting you and to more and more delight in living your ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.